Thanks for joining us today as you listen to a portion of a message recorded at Vine Life Church in Boulder, Colorado. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can visit us online at www.vinelife.com. Is divine union. What if what he really wants is us? And not just a surface thing that feels okay, I'm good enough. But he's wanting the deep. He's wanting to show us the deep of him and to see the deep of us. What if that is what it's all about? But isn't it hard? For us to wrap our head around that and certainly wrap our heart around it? Don't we feel sometimes that the Lord is relating to us as a means to an end? The end being that he's working to get us to something. So relationship really becomes about tolerating us in the process. You know, um, he's like trying to be kind, trying to be loving as we're working through this process. We're working, working, working. That's what this whole life is about because he's hoping that eventually we're going to get to. Sometimes we don't even know what that to is. We just have this idea of some level of Christ-likeness that we know we are not at. And hopefully someday maybe we will arrive. It probably won't be here on earth. It probably won't be until heaven. But that's what it is all about. So discipleship is God tolerating relationship to get us to. But I want to tell you this morning that that is not what discipleship is. Yes, there is an end in mind but he is all about the in, between. Because the purpose of discipleship is divine union, which means he's in the process, he's in the means, he's in the beginning, he's in the end, he's in every part of the middle. He is committed, committed, committed to knowing you and you knowing him. He wants relationship, and that is what it is all about. There was a a time in my life, I, I say this, okay, this is still unfolding for me. This is something I have to remind myself of every moment. God, you're in this for me because you love me, because you love me, because you love me, and that's what it's all about. Because here's the truth of it. He knows the more that we're connected with his heart, the more that we know him, the more that we will be known by him. All of the doing, all of that stuff that we were talking about, all those disciplines aren't, they won't be disciplines. They will be a natural thing that flows out of us. But there was a time in my life I was really wrestling. This was years ago. And honestly, I I would cry often when I would be praying with the Lord and spending time tucked away. I mean, we know prayer is an ongoing thing. It's not a five-minute slot. It's life. It's constant communication with God. Um, But when I would be in these prayer times, often I would cry because uh, they weren't good tears. I had this image that I was going to get to the end, that I would finally get to the two, okay? I'd be standing before Jesus at the end of my life. 
And instead of him having this delighted face and like arms open wide, like, come on, bring it in, he would have this look of uh, just disappointment. Because I would see him pointing to this list, which I had been helping him compile, by the way, of all the things that I didn't do. And I had reasons for why I didn't, selfishness, fear, whatever. But it was all this list. And he was like, I had all of these things for you to do, Jeanette, and you did none of them. And he would have this total look of disappointment. So that gives you the framework of where my heart and my mind is before the Lord. All right, so picture it. I'm laying on my couch. I have this rare moment in the season because all my kids were home and um, I was homeschooling. So I don't even know this, how this happened that I had a moment during the day that I, it was quiet and nobody was around. Like, seriously, the house was empty. Um, but I'm lying on the couch and I'm crying. I'm crying because earlier that day, some woman came to my door. She was looking for a different house. She thought my house was the house she was looking for. Once we realized she was in the wrong place, she went on her way, and I noticed that she was limping as she walked away. So now flash, flash forward three hours, I'm lying on my couch, I'm crying. I'm crying because, honestly, I don't remember if I was crying because I felt that the Lord asked me to pray for her, and I didn't because I was afraid, or if I flat out didn't even think of it until three hours later. I'm thinking it's the latter. And I'm really down on myself because I had been purposing in this season to step out and pray for people, especially for healing. I'm thinking my relationship with the Lord has to do with doing, and I majorly failed. I mean, if it didn't even occur to me to pray for somebody that God had literally brought to my door, I mean, I'm stinking this up, right? And so I'm crying and I'm asking, Holy Spirit, please be patient with me. I'm going to get this at some point. I don't know when, but I, I know I have to. So please don't pull your presence away from me. Don't give up on me. I'm going to get it. And I mean, it was honest, sincere tears. Because I really felt like that was going to happen. At some point, Holy Spirit was going to be like, I have been so, we've been waiting for so long. Forget it. And right then, a strange thing happened. I began to hear my grandmother's voice. Not literally. She actually lived, I was in Colorado Springs. She lived in Massachusetts. She wasn't around. But what I didn't realize is around the corner in my foyer, sitting on this bench, was a book that my grandmother had given my youngest daughter, Jessa, for Christmas or her birthday. And since we lived so far away, it was one of those books where you can record yourself reading the book. So when Jessa would open the book, it would start with this cute little greeting. Hello, Jessa, this is your great-granny. I'm going to read you a book. And then each page turn, it would signal and it would read the book. Well, it had been sitting open where she left it. And again, I told you, nobody was around. We didn't even have pets. So couldn't even, I mean, the windows weren't open. Nothing could have triggered this book to start talking. But right then, when I'm crying and begging Holy Spirit, please be patient with me, I begin to hear my grandmother's voice. 
It doesn't pick up at the beginning of the book. It starts right about here. And I hear her say, Your smile always lightens up my day. Your eyes sparkle like the stars in the sky. Your laugh is one of my very favorite sounds. I love you so much because you are the one and only you. And boy, I was crying already, but now I'm like snotting. It was ugly cry. (laughs) Because I felt like that was God's voice speaking to me in that moment through this book. And he was saying, Jeanette, it's not about what you do. You can pray for a thousand people and watch me heal them. It's not going to make me love you any more or any less. It's not going to make me want to be with you any more or any less. And I felt like he said, you know, I am going to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant, when it's all done. Because that was one of my fears. Like, he wouldn't be able to say that because I had not done what I was supposed to do. He said, not only am I going to say that, but I'm also going to... It's not... My heart, Jeanette, is not for you to be servant and me to be master. What I want is to be your father. And so what I want to say is, welcome home, daughter. And there's a verse, excuse me, in Jeremiah 3.19 that I feel like conveys this so beautifully. He's actually talking to the Israelites um, but he, he's speaking to us too today when he says, How I long to make you my children and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations. I thought you would call me father and never turn away from me. This is God's heart. He wants to be father. And he wants to have an intimate, close connection with us. And that is his purpose. That is his aim. That is his drive. That is his biggest want, is for that. Now, we start reading the Bible. And right away, in the very first story of the first man and woman that he creates, it would appear that this is not true. It would appear that the very first man and woman that he created this beautiful space for, and he was coming, and he was meeting with them, and he was talking with them, and sharing hearts with them, the moment they mess up, he's like, that's it, you're kicked out, banished. Right? But if we leave the glasses on that say that God wants divine union... And that's his want, that's his purpose, that's his goal. Then what is going on in that story? If this is the want, why would God kick them out of the place that he created for them? Was it because he was so disgusted with them now? They have sin on him and he can't be around them? What if the whole thing was about a loving father that wanted to protect his kids? You see, there, we know that there were two trees. There was the tree of life, 
which they could eat from. And then there was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he didn't want them to eat from that. Why? Because up to that point, all they knew was good. That was the Father's heart. He only wanted us to experience good. And so when they looked around and they saw God, they said, good. And when they looked at the trees, they said, good. And when they looked at a dog, of course they said, good. And when they looked at cats, they said, good. I'm a dog person, sorry. But the important thing is when they looked at them, what did they say? Good. They had no reason to say anything different. God said, very good, in fact. But then something begins to move. And they start to wonder, hmm, can you really give me everything that I need and everything that I want, God? Maybe I need to take care of this myself. Take from that fruit. Somehow it's going to supply something that I don't, I don't know that I trust you, God, to make for me happen, provide for me. And as soon as they eat that fruit, what happens? Now comes the need to make judgment, measurement, assessment. Now instead of knowing only good, they have to determine this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. And the very first determination that they make, the very first measurement, the very first judgment, what do they do? It's of themselves. And what God had said is very good. Now all of a sudden they say, bad, 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 bad. Oh gosh, we got we to gotta get this bush and put it in between us and God. That'll, that'll protect us. And we know the Father's heart was connection. We know that the goal was divine union because what happens? What does God do? He knew what had happened. He knew what they ate. But he comes looking for them anyway. And he says, where are you? Why are you hiding behind this bush? Why did you put this thing in between us? Who told you you were naked? Who told you that you weren't worthy of my presence? I'm still here. I still want union with you. I still want relationship. I want to be your father. I do not want you to turn away. That's God's heart. And it's still his heart today. It hasn't changed. He doesn't change. He didn't kick them out. He protected them. Because he said, wow, if you stay here where I've, I've made this place for you and you eat from that tree of life, you're going to get stuck in this place where your mindset is so warped that you can't determine what's good and what's bad. You can't perceive. And I don't want you to get stuck in that. So I'm going to remove you from this place. I'm going to set a guard of protection over this tree until I can come back and I can lay myself down for you and be the tree of life that you can eat from and live from eternity and then be restored to only knowing good again. That's the heart of the Father. He will not take away his presence 
as punishment. I want to look this morning at two different men who dealt with this whole thing and their perception of the Father and their response to him in a, in a situation um, created two different experiences. And I believe that there's an important key for us as we move forward with this axiom in mind of really trying to embrace that God's heart is for divine union with us, no matter what. And there is nothing that we can do to make him want to be with us more. We can't not twist his arm. He's already there. He already wants it. So let's look at Genesis 4. Adam and Eve had sons. First they had Cain, and then they had Abel. So we're going to look at something that happens with them. Okay, so picking up in verse 2. It says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay. When we read that, it's really easy to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This whole thing seems to be about he didn't do, and so then you were done, God. There's no doubt. I mean, he messed up. We were given a mandate as ones who would bear the mark of God, his image, image bearers. He said, I am making you like me, and so... I'm giving you the ability to create life as I am a creator and everything that I create is life-giving. And so he gave us that honor to bring life into this world. He blesses it and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And what does Cain do? 
He takes life instead of giving it. The other mandate was to take care of this earth. And he was one that tilled the the soil. And instead of sowing something into the ground that was good and would give him a bounty to eat from, he fed the soil that was already cursed because of the actions of his mother and father. He feeds that cursed soil blood from an innocent man. And it might seem like God, when he's talking to him, is saying, laying down punishment that God has given. But I believe God is saying, look, these are, this is the situation now. This is the result. This is the consequence, if you will, of your actions. Cain, you sowed into this earth something that the only thing that's going to be produced from that is death. And you can't eat that. You might be saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back to the beginning because if God hadn't played favorites between the two boys, none of this would have happened. Why is God choosing one gift to accept and favor and the other one he seems to be rejecting? Let's keep on our lens. God wants divine union. That's what this is all about. So what's happening there? I believe we're seeing something that Jesus would reveal later. When we look through the New Testament, we see Jesus asking people all kinds of questions. I believe that God recognized that there was something moving, something very similar than what he, that what he saw his parents wrestling with. And he was using this whole situation to bring it up to the surface as an effort to say, let's talk about this, Cain. I'm recognizing that there's something going on that you're wanting to distance yourself from me. And what does God want, right? He's after the deep. He doesn't want to keep things at the surface. He wants the deep of Cain so he can reveal the deep of him. And so, yeah, the Abel gives the first and the best. And he gives it to God, and in so doing, he's declaring to himself, he's declaring to everybody around, he's declaring to the heavens, he's declaring to God and saying, there is nothing that is more important to me than you. And I believe that even though this thing, I could eat it, and it would nourish me, and it would probably taste awesome, I'm giving it to you, God, and I'm saying that I'm trusting you to fill that need and that want and that desire. But see, Cain couldn't do that. He gave God surface. I'm comfortable with this offering. But there was something that was moving in Cain that said, my fruit, the best of my fruit, I believe is going to supply me with something. It's going to fulfill a need that I have and a want that I don't trust that you're either going to want to give it to me or that I can have it. And so instead of trusting you, God, I'm, I'm withholding this. I'll give you something, but I'm withholding this because I believe in self-dependency, self 
reliance that this thing is going to fulfill something that you won't or you can't. And we see God presenting a question to Cain, saying, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It sure seems like at first glance and reading that, that God is reiterating everything the opposite of what I've been saying. It's all about his doing, his doing, his doing. But maybe God is asking this question to say, Cain, is this what you believe? Do you believe that if you give me the best, then I'm going to accept you? Then you'll belong? Then you'll be loved? Because what do we know from the rest of this book? What does God tell us? We're already loved. We already belong. I believe he was saying to Cain, Cain, you're a son. You're mine. You belong. This isn't about what you do. I want your heart. I don't want you to feel the pressure of feeling like you have to do it yourself. Fulfill a need. I will fulfill every need that you have, every want that you have. Because what does he say at the end? You must master it. That's not consistent with what we know the rest of the Bible says either. This isn't about us doing it. Even the will to do good comes from Holy Spirit himself. It is not about us and self-reliance and self-dependency. And I believe God was trying to have a conversation with Cain and say, let's look at what's moving in your heart towards me and the, the way that you're not trusting me. Let's deal with this, Cain. But sadly, we know that Cain didn't, he didn't take it in. He wouldn't talk to God about it because he leaves from there and he kills, he murders. And then when we look at the interaction that he has with the Lord after the deed has been done, he's not taking any kind of ownership. As a parent, I recognize this. You can tell your kids, please don't do this, and this is what's going to happen if you do. And then they go and do the thing that you said don't to do anyway. And there's natural consequences. I mean, it's not even times where I'm, I'm laying down punishment. There's just consequences of doing certain things that happen. And I'm grieved that they're going to have to experience that. And yet, I, there's times with my kids where they will not take ownership of their part in it and their inability to have really connected with me and understood my heart and what I was saying ahead of time. And so we see Cain do that here. He doesn't take ownership. And he says, God, your, your punishment is more than I can bear. So in Cain's eyes, this is not about consequences of his actions. This is about God being the big meanie, and he doesn't want to take ownership of it. 
We saw his parents do the same thing. No, she made me do it. No, the snake made me do it. And when we posture ourselves like this, pride comes in because it all becomes about our self-dependency and doing it myself, and I need to make this happen, and I cannot rely on God in this place. And this pride-blinded Cain, he could not see the truth because what does he say to God? In verse 13, I'm sorry, 14, he says, Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. Cain is saying, I've messed up to the point that you're done now. You're removing your presence from me, God. But did he say that? What is going on with Cain that he would think this? The saddest part of the story, honestly, to me, is verse 16, where it says, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. And I remember reading that and thinking, What? How is this possible? God, were you not able to get to the land of Non with east of Eden out of your reach? Why did Cain feel like you weren't there? And when I asked, and I was really indignant and upset at God, why would you remove your presence from him? God said, Jeanette, I was there every moment, every breath that he took, every second, every day. But Cain was blinded. He could not see the truth. He cut me off. He did not believe that my presence was there for him. And so he shut himself down from being able to experience my presence. There's another man who murdered Becht. And his murder, it included adultery. So if we're going to measure, like, whoa, he's way down. I'm talking about King David. And God confronts him. You murdered. You committed adultery. And we have the benefit of that King David was a writer, that he would write poems, that he would write songs about his experiences with the Lord And we see in Psalm 51 his response to the Lord when confronted with his sin. I'm going to skip around. But it starts, and we see David go low. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Ownership. He's taking ownership. He's getting down low. And he's saying, I'm sorry, God. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And in this place where he's in humility... He questions too, as Cain did. Is this thing the thing that will cause you to remove your presence from me? And he asks, do not cast me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. 
And later on, he'll say, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you do not despise. You see, there's something that happens when we choose humility versus pride. When we say, God, I'm going to trust you to meet every need that I have. Even if I'm afraid. There was something that caused David to go murder and commit adultery. There was a need that he was feeling like he needed to take into his own hands and meet. That he didn't trust God to meet for him. But when he is confronted with it and faces it, he goes down low. And I, I believe there's a key here for us that we find in Isaiah 57, 15. It says, The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the Holy One says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. So he's saying when we go low, when we choose humility, it's in that place that God picks us up and takes us high into the heavenlies where he is seated to see and perceive from there, to assess and look down on the bushes, to see the beginning from the end. And it's in this place, in this high and lifted place, that we can see him and be restored to seeing goodness and knowing goodness and where we can truly see ourselves and see what God sees. Good, very good even in the midst, even right in the middle of all the bushes that we've slapped in front of him, of sin, of our works. There's a principle in the natural that speaks of a spiritual principle. When water rushes into a place, it looks to fill what is low, the lowest point. And God does the same. When his spirit is hovering, looking to who to connect and fill, it's the low places that he can go to. And I believe in this place where David was laid out before the Lord in humility. God picked him up, lifted him up with him to see And perceive the truth. Because in Psalm 139, David answers his own question and the the thing that he asked the Lord when he said, don't take your spirit away from me. Starting in verse 7, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, surely adultery, surely murder will hide me from you, God. 
Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. It was in that high place that he could see God and see there is nothing, nothing, nothing that I can do that would cause you to pull your presence away from me. And it was there that David could see what is true for us today. That God's heart, his goal is for divine union.